My name is Jen, and I'm one of the team here. And uh, this morning, we are on week three of our series, God Tweets, where we're looking at the book of Proverbs. And this morning, we're actually going to fast forward right to the very end of the book of Proverbs. We're going to look at Proverbs chapter 31. If you didn't get teaching notes when you came in, then if you want to put your hands up, one of the Connect team will bring those to you so you can follow with us as we go through. So Proverbs 31, we're going to start from verse 10, but I'm just going to pray. Father, I thank you that you are already here. I thank you that you see us. I thank you that you are the God who wants to speak to us. And I thank you for your word. Thank you for giving us the Bible so that we can understand you, so that we can know you better. And Father, I pray for every person in this room, from the front to the back, from the youngest to the oldest. I pray that every single one of us, Lord, would have an aha moment this morning, that we would have a revelation moment. We would have a light bulb moment where we understand you more clearly. We want to know you more. We want to understand you. Lord, speak to us today, Father God. We want to hear your voice. Amen. 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 Proverbs 31, verse 10. A wife of noble character. A wife of noble character, who can find? She is worth far more than rubies. Her husband has full confidence in her and lacks nothing of value. She brings him good, not harm, all the days of her life. She selects wool and flax and works with eager hands. She is like the merchant ships, bringing her food from afar. She gets up while it is still night and prepares food for her family and portions for her female servants. She considers a field and buys it. Out of her earnings, she plants a vineyard. She sets about her work vigorously. Her arms are strong for her tasks. She sees that her trading is profitable, and her lamp does not go out at night. In her hand, she holds the distaff and grasps the spindle with her fingers. She opens her arms to the poor and extends her hands to the needy. Wow. I haven't even finished the passage, but already we can see here is an amazing woman. What an incredible woman. She She is an amazing wife. She looks out for the poor. She knows how to manage her finances. She's an amazing domestic goddess. She's a businesswoman. She is an amazing woman. Indeed, who can find such a woman? And Steve, I just want to say thank you so much for giving this passage to me (laughs) this morning. You know, we can look at this and and think, God, why did you set the bar so high? We look at Proverbs 31, we think, wow, what an amazing woman. How can we aspire to be like that woman? But not only that, how can the guys get away with it? Like, why is there no Proverbs 31 man? Well, before we get too carried away, here's a few things that you might not know about Proverbs 31. Number one, Proverbs 31 is a poem, not a job description. Proverbs 31 is a 22-line acrostic poem. So the first letter of each line actually corresponds to a letter in the Hebrew alphabet. 
So this is literally the A to Z of wisdom, if you like. If you've read the book of, of Proverbs, you will know that there are two main characters throughout the book, Lady Wisdom and Lady Folly. And the book of Proverbs begins with the command, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so Proverbs 31, here is a woman that has followed that command, that has said yes to God, and has begun to walk on the road of wisdom. And wisdom is beginning to show up in every single detail of her life. So as you look at, the, at, the, at Proverbs 31, as you read the poem, you'll see that each line corresponds to a different um, thing that has been treated in Proverbs in, in the previous 30 chapters of Proverbs, whether it's wisdom in finance, whether it's wisdom in relationships, all of those themes show up in the Proverbs 31 poem. You see, we're not meant to interpret this prescriptively. Proverbs 31 is a poem, not a job description. This is not about roles. It's not about reducing womanhood to marriage, motherhood, and domesticity. <laughs> Do I hear an Amen. It's not about roles. This is about who we are. It's not about what we do. And so, guys, you know, if you thought you were coming along this morning and you could just sit back and, you know, have a snooze while your um, spouse or your friend took notes, well, I'm sorry, but actually this is a message for you too. Because this is about who we are, not what we do. Proverbs 31 is a poem, not a job description. And you too are God's poem. Ephesians 2 tells us that you are God's masterpiece. You are his work of art. The, the word that's used there in the Greek is the word poem. You are God's poem. And you were created to shine. You are a person of noble character and you are incredibly precious to God. You know, the gathered people of God, as when we as individuals gather together on a Sunday, the church, in, in the Bible, we're also referred to in female terms. We're called the bride of Christ. If you've ever been to a wedding, you will know that the bride is radiant. The bride is lovely. The bride is beautiful. And we are God's bride. We are his poem. But you see, I believe that one of the greatest challenges for us as Christians is to understand this truth and to claim that truth each day. To understand that our identity is not in what we do, but in who we are as the beloved, called, chosen people of God. You see, if we get those two things mixed up, then what we'll do is we'll go to Proverbs 31 and we'll use it as a yardstick to measure our value. And either we'll come away and think, oh yes, I've got it all together. Proverbs 31, oh yeah, that's who I am. Or we'll look at it and we'll think, I can never reach up to that. I can never do that. Jenny, you're telling me that this is what the Christian life is like? I, I've got to be perfect? And we'll go through life always comparing ourselves. One day we'll feel superior. The next minute we feel inferior. And we waste so much of our emotional energy on this. But when you can, re you know, we're constantly trying to prove that we are somebody. Constantly trying to keep up appearances. Constantly trying to compete with one another. 
But when you realize that you are the beloved, chosen child of God, then you can focus on your real calling. That is to be his poem. You see, God invites us to call, to join him in his redemptive plan. As we say yes to God and we begin to walk on the path of wisdom, we are meant to be those that call out to others. When you read the book of Proverbs, you see that these two women, Lady Wisdom and Lady Folly, they are crying out passionately. They are crying out for people that are passing by to join them on their road. And you know, God has called us, the church, his bride, to be those that say to others, come over here. Come and join us. Don't you know that life is better over here? Don't you know that life is better on the path of wisdom? You see, Revelation tells us the Spirit and the Bride say, come. The Spirit and the Bride say, come. God and the church, us as the people of God together, we need to be people that know who we are. God has called us to be the head and not the tail. He's called us to be people of influence that know who we are and that we can walk on this road of wisdom and say, come. Come over here. Proverbs 31 is a poem, not a job description. You are a person of noble character. And you are important to God. You too are his poem. Number two, Proverbs 31 was intended to inspire, not condemn. Did you know that the target audience for this poem was actually men? It was the men, not the women, who were meant to memorize this passage. And they were meant to sing it over the women in their lives, over their wife, over their sisters, their mother, their daughters, every Sabbath, to remind them that they were precious, to remind them that they were valued. Do you know that we have a God who sings over us? You see, God always starts in our lives with an affirmation of who we are. We are loved. We are valued. God encourages us. He's our greatest cheerleader. He stands beside us and he's like, come on, you can do this. I believe in you. Come on, keep going. Don't quit. You see, we have a God who puts courage into us, who encourages us. When was the last time that you encouraged someone? My husband and I, we will celebrate our third wedding anniversary this Wednesday. Thank you. And last year, I remember on our anniversary, we went out for dinner together. It's one of my favorite things to do together. And while we were waiting for the meal to arrive, um, I had an idea, you know, I love encouragement. I love to give encouragement and I love to receive encouragement. And so I said to my husband, you know, while we're waiting for the meal, why don't we like think of three things that we really love about each other? Why don't we think about three things that, you know, we really value being married and uh, appreciate about one another? And so he was like, okay. Um, so he agreed reluctantly. But he agreed, because he loves me. Um, so anyway, so he starts off, and he says, um, well, Jen, the first thing that I really love about you, the, th the first thing that I really appreciate about you, Jen, is that you do the washing. <laughs> I know. I was not expecting that. I was like, John, like, you could have just paid someone to do your washing. You didn't actually need a wife <laughs> to do the washing. I was, I was like, I did not expect 
that. So I was like, honey, I was kind of expecting something a bit more than that, maybe. And so he's like, okay, don't worry, I've still got two, two to go. <laughs> so um, anyway, so the second thing he said was, um, okay, Jen, the second thing that I really appreciate about you is that you're always telling me how great I am. Because <laughs> my husband also loves encouragement. But you know what I believe? We all need encouragement. We all need encouragement. We, we love, we, we need it. It actually infuses strength into us. And we have a God who encourages us. You're all waiting to hear the last thing now, aren't you? I'm not going to tell you that one. Okay. Number three. <laughs> Number one, Proverbs 31 is a poem, not a job description. Number two, Proverbs 31 was intended to inspire, not condemn. And number three, Proverbs 31 shows us that wisdom is a person, not a plan. Wisdom is a person, not a plan. You see, the book of Proverbs, like all books in the Bible, was actually written to show us what God is like, his nature, his character, and to show us as the people of God, how do we walk with God? Wisdom is not a 10-point plan. Wisdom is a person. And we have the the privilege of reading the book of Proverbs in light of the New Testament with a revelation of Jesus. And Proverbs 31, this personification of, of wisdom, actually points us towards the true personification of wisdom. His name is Jesus. You see, Jesus is wisdom. He is the wisdom of God, and he has become for us our wisdom It is in knowing Jesus that we become wise. The book of Proverbs was written, lots lots of the passages were written by King Solomon, who Steve explained in in the first week that, you know, Solomon came to the throne at a very young age and he prayed to God that God would give him wisdom to know how to lead the people. And God answered his prayer. People would come from miles around to hear and learn from his wisdom. But then along comes Jesus. Jesus didn't just have wisdom, Jesus is wisdom. And if you read the Gospels, you'll see that Jesus exuded wisdom. You see, the Bible says of Jesus that he taught as one that had authority, not like the teachers of the law. He was different to the teachers of the day, and people saw it, and they recognized it, and they flocked to hear him speak. But you see, that really ticked off the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. They felt jealous of Jesus. They felt intimidated by him. They felt that Jesus undermined them. They felt that Jesus undermined their laws, and they didn't like that. And so they were constantly trying to find a way to trip Jesus up, to bring him down, to undermine his teaching, and ultimately to get rid of him. And in these last few moments, I just want to share with you a a story from the Gospel of John, where the Pharisees and the teachers of, of the law thought they'd finally cracked it. They thought they'd come up with the plan to end all plans. Finally, they were going to bring Jesus down. You see, they'd found a woman that they would consider the very antithesis of the Proverbs 31 woman. The very opposite of a Proverbs 31 woman. They'd found a woman that Proverbs would call a wayward woman, an unruly woman. They had caught a woman in the act of adultery. 
And you know, they must have been so sure that their plan would succeed. Because they didn't just go to Jesus in private and discuss this with him. Oh no. They chose one of the most public settings you could have imagined. They catch this woman in the act of adultery early in the morning and they drag her into the temple courts where Jesus is teaching the people. They make her stand in front of everyone, in front of all the people. They point the finger at her and they say, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. Now, Jesus, what do you say? There was no way that Jesus could walk away from this scene without saying anything. You see, the law of Moses did require the death penalty for adultery. And it wasn't enough just to suspect someone. You actually had to catch them in the act. And here they were, they dragged this woman into the temple and said, here's a woman that we have found caught in the act of adultery. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they knew that Jesus was compassionate. They knew that he loved people and they perceived that he would want to let her go free. But if he did that, then he would actually be uh, undermining a law in Mo of Moses. And that was a very serious offense if they let her go free. But you see, even if, the, even if Jesus agreed with them, even if he said, yes, uphold the law, there was a trap in that as well. Because either he would incur the wrath of the common people who would have felt that he turned his back on them. But secondly, at that time, the Romans were in power. And only the Roman authorities had the right to order an execution. So it seemed that Jesus was trapped. Whatever decision he made, whatever he said, he was trapped. It was a clever plan, but it was also a complete sham. You see, there was someone missing from this scene, a central character missing from this scene. The man. Where was the man? You see, you can't have adultery with just one person. And the law of Moses said that if a man and woman are caught in the act of adultery, both the man and the woman must die. Where was the man? Had they, in their wisdom, decided that, what, the man could go free and the woman should stand condemned and die? They didn't love the law. They hated Jesus. They didn't love the law. They, they perverted the law. They twisted the law. They manipulated the law to bring Jesus down. You know, we may feel that People don't see what's really going on in our hearts. You know, we may feel that we can put on a show and, and pretend and mask and, and act all superior as though we're wise and we have all the knowledge and we know what we're about. But actually, eventually, our actions will catch up with us. You see, our actions, our words reveal what's going on in our heart. And their actions expose them for who they were. 
But you know, the really sad thing about this story is that even if, even if it was revealed, this is a total sham. They had exploited a vulnerable woman. In an in attempt to bring Jesus down, in their attempt to show their piousness, in an attempt to show their, their wisdom, they had exploited a vulnerable woman. Yes, she had sinned. Yes, she had done wrong. But she was a woman who had been created in the image of God. She was precious to him. And they shamed her. And they accused her. And you know, even if it was all proved to be a sham, you know, her life would never be the same again. She would never recover from the shame, from the horror of that day. We don't know much about the woman. We don't know why, as a married woman, she'd ended up in an adulterous relationship. There can be many reasons. But for whatever reason, she'd made some wrong decisions along the way, and now she'd found herself on the path of folly. And I wonder, as she was standing there, I, I just wonder what was going through her mind. As the Pharisees and the teachers of the law point the finger and everybody is staring at her, exposed, vulnerable, maybe half-dressed. I wonder what was going through her mind. Was she replaying the scenes of the last few weeks and months, thinking, if only I could, if only I could go back. If only I could go back and change things. If only I could go back and undo it. If only I could change it, I would do anything to go back there. But it was too late. Here she was, stood in front of the crowd with everybody staring at her and, and waiting for Jesus to give the verdict. She's bracing herself to hear what is Jesus going to say? What is wisdom going to say? What happens when wisdom comes face to face with folly? What is Jesus going to say? And Jesus does not say a single word. Actually, what Jesus does is he bends down and he begins to write with his finger in the ground. And we don't know what Jesus wrote in the ground that day. There are many theories, many ideas. Some people think perhaps he was writing the Pharisees' sins on the ground. But you know, as I reflected on this passage, I, I had a thought of my own as to what might be going on in that moment. You see, I believe that body language is very powerful. What we do with our body makes a statement. It's a very powerful tool that we have. And here was an, a moment that was, this was a scene that was full of aggression. It was full of tension. It was full of emotion. It was a violent scene. And here's Jesus. And what he does is with his body, he actually makes himself small. He bends down. He stoops down. He looks down. He averts his gaze away while everybody is staring at her. He averts his eyes away. You see, I believe Jesus was communicating something very powerful to that woman that day. 
I believe he was saying to her, I am not a threat to you. I am not with them. I am not like them. I am not a threat to you. You see, I want you to picture this scene in your mind. Because I believe that there are some of you here, in fact, I believe there are many of you here. You believe that when you do something wrong, you believe that Jesus wants to pull you out in front of the crowd and say, this woman, this man, that he wants to shame you, that he wants to accuse you, that he wants to expose you. And the God of heaven wants you to know that that is not who he is. You see, the posture of our God is he stooped. He stooped, he made himself small. Jesus took the nature of a servant. He humbled himself. The posture of wisdom is humility. In that moment, Jesus stoops and he reaches out. That is the posture of wisdom. But you see, the Pharisees just could not let it go. They just went on and on and on about it until finally Jesus stands up and he turns to them and he says, fine, the law of Moses says to stone her, let the person here who has never sinned start that stoning. Silence. Jesus again stoops down and he begins to write in the sand. And one by one, they begin to slip away. It took some of them a while to understand what was going on. Starting with the oldest first, but every single person at that scene left the scene. Because you see, all of us have fallen short. All of us have sinned. All of us have gone our own way. None of us have any right to point the finger Jesus was the only person in that place who could have pointed the finger. And yet in one sentence, he gets rid of every single one of her accusers. With one sentence, I want to ask you this morning, who are your accusers? Who are your accusers because they have no right to accuse you? And you see, the crowd disperses, and then we have this beautiful moment where there was just the woman and Jesus. And she stood there bracing herself, waiting to see what is Jesus now going to say. And Jesus says to her, woman, where are they? Where's everyone gone? Where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No one, sir, she says. And Jesus says to her, neither do I condemn you. Neither do I condemn you. Now go and leave your life of sin. I, I just want to, I wonder, you know, what happened in that moment to that woman? 
One minute she thinks she's going to die, the next minute she's allowed to go free. I mean, the roller coaster of emotions that she must have experienced that day. I wonder, did she fall to her knees and sob at Jesus' feet? Did she stand there in amazement, just not able to take it in? Did she run all the way home in sheer relief? I don't know. But I want to ask you this morning, how did you respond when you heard the words of Jesus say, neither do I condemn you? Where were you on that day? What were you doing when you heard those words of Jesus say, neither do I condemn you? Because that is where we all start as Christians. You see, we can look at the Proverbs 31 woman and think, oh, she's so perfect. She never made a mistake. She never did anything wrong. Wrong. We all start this journey by recognizing where we are that we're on the road of folly, that we've lost our way, that we're going in the wrong direction. You see, wisdom does not point the finger. Wisdom reaches out to us and pulls us off that path of folly. We all start the journey with, a, with an experience of amazing grace from the God that stoops to us. And says over us, neither do I condemn you. Can I ask the band to come up? You see, if you try to pursue wisdom, if you try to pursue not sinning without an experience of amazing grace, what you end up with is hypocrisy, legalism, and a heartless misuse of the law. Because wisdom does not condemn. Wisdom is a person. And wisdom reaches to us. Wisdom does not condemn. But wisdom also does not compromise. You see, Jesus says to this woman, neither do I condemn you. Not because adultery doesn't matter. Adultery does matter. Sin does matter. The wages of sin is death. Sin does matter. But Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. You see, that woman had a choice. If she wanted to follow the path of wisdom, if she wanted to follow Jesus, there were some decisions that she was going to need to make. She was going to need to make some changes. She was going to need to end the affair. She was going to need to go to her husband and tell him what she'd done and ask, is there any way we can put this marriage back together? She had some decisions to make, some choices to make. You see, wisdom does not condemn, but it also doesn't compromise. There is a cost to following Jesus. Jesus asks us every day to take up our cross, to deny ourselves and to follow him. And maybe you're here today and you know, maybe you're here and you've been tormented by those voices of accusation. Maybe there's, maybe there's people here and something's happened years and years ago and that accusation, that, that shame has never left you. God wants to set you free today. Remove that accusation, remove that shame, remove that guilt. So you can walk out of here knowing that you are a beloved child of God, chosen by Him. 
Or maybe you're here and you say, you know what, I, I've been walking this road of wisdom, but somehow I've wandered off and I'm in folly. I've, I've begun to compromise There's certain areas of my life that I'm compromising. Well, there's an opportunity for you today to come back, to reach out to the hand that reaches to you.